The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the French decorative art that inspired Walt Disney, Henri Matisse's collaboration with a great collector in Baltimore, and Joseph Albert's prints. Amy Dawson talks to Wolf Burchard, a curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, about inspiring Walt Disney, the animation of French decorative arts, which opens today. As the Baltimore Museum of Art opens its new centre for Matisse studies, I discuss the French artist's special relationship with the Baltimore-based collector Etta Cohn, which is the foundation of the museum's huge collection of Matisse works in all media. And in this episode's Work of the Week, I talk to the gallerist Alan Christea about some Joseph Albers lithographs. Before all that, a reminder to check out our sister podcast, A Brush With, featuring in-depth conversations with artists about the art, music, literature and film that's influenced them and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. The latest episode is with Isaac Julian. Do subscribe to A Brush With and this podcast wherever you're listening now. And if you like what we do, please give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to find us. Now, today, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York opens Inspiring Walt Disney, which looks at Disney's personal fascination with European art and references to different French styles from medieval to Rococo and Gothic revival in his company's animations and theme parks. The show features 60 works of 18th century art and design and 150 items relating to Disney. Our deputy digital editor, Amy Dawson, spoke to the curator, Wolf Burchardt, about the show. Disney is one of the world's biggest companies and the Met is one of the world's biggest museums. And how has there never been a Disney show at the Met? Well, I don't have a straightforward answer to that. Um, I think that one element of the answer may lie in the fact that, as you said, there are two very large organisations and two, in a way, quite strong brands and to bring two organizations of those sizes with strong brands together may come with uh, a certain degree of challenges and might require some some patience and diplomacy, which worked out in, in this case, absolutely. But that may be one of the reasons why nobody's attempted to do it before, to get to a situation of this scale with two completely different traditions, of course, to work together. And naturally, Disney is this fantastical Hollywood dream world, you know, creator. And the Met has obviously an incredibly impressive space and, and a great expert curators and incredible resources to draw upon. So can we expect the same incredible production values from this exhibition of these two kind of <laughs> enormous institutions coming together? Well, we obviously wanted this exhibition to be an immersive experience. And wanted to create a space and an atmosphere that was appropriate for the objects that we put on display. And obviously we do that with, with any exhibition. However, what we didn't want to do is create something that looks and feels like Disneyland. And I worked very closely together with our uh, in-house designer, Patrick Heron, and gave him the not that straightforward brief to hit exactly the right spot between academic sobriety and juvenile playfulness because I wanted 
the the space to encourage close looking for the inquisitive visitor, but also a space that was one that would appeal to uh, a family audience and to children. And so we we worked very closely together, and I think he absolutely uh, met his brief and created a space that is both serious and playful. And so can we expect lots of multimedia elements? In what ways will it be immersive? Well, again, we, we didn't want to go over the top with multimedia, but there is, of course, uh, multimedia in the exhibition. We've got, I think, about eight screens of different sizes, uh, when you first come into the exhibition, there's a projection that shows you original film footage from 1935 shot by Disney himself when visiting Europe and very specifically France and Versailles. So that is really special. You see the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles. It's obviously black and white footage filmed by the Hollywood dream maker himself. And then as you proceed through the galleries, you have small screens about the size of of uh, of the works on paper on display in the surroundings that show early Disney animation, the Silly Symphonies from 1931 and 1934, uh, and then, of course, uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty. But we always try to match the screens to the size of the uh, works on paper exhibited uh, in the immediate vicinity. And really, they're there as almost as comparative illustrations. So we want the visitor to focus on the two-dimensional and three-dimensional objects, but also to retrace the extraordinary development of art and, and in stylistic terms and technological terms as they proceed through the galleries. And we thought also very carefully about the placement of the, of the screens. As we all know, we, humanity, is always drawn to the movement and colour of screens. So we place them actually relatively at the beginning of each gallery so that people can look at the screen, they get their fix, as it were, and then they can proceed through the gallery and, and look at the works on paper that informed uh, what you then eventually saw on the screen. It's really interesting to hear the background thinking to how not to make these kinds of things compete too much so that we're mm. looking at both the art and the moving image. So let's talk a little bit about the objects in the show and the and the story to the show. And obviously, it's focusing mostly on French decorative arts and how it inspired Disney. And I just wondered if you could start by saying a little bit about what, why Walt Disney was so attracted to French decorative arts and, and about the time that he spent in Europe. So Walt Disney loved traveling and he was generally interested in European culture, France, England and Germany in particular. He first set foot in France in December 1918, right after World War One, And that first trip when he was only 17 years old was in a transformational experience for him. He then went back to, to America in 1923, founded his studios, and then returned to Europe in 1935 and did a kind of grand tour covering England, France, Germany, Austria, and Italy. And over the course of that trip, he accumulated about 300 art and illustrated books, which he took back to Los Angeles, and they became the nucleus of his animation research library. It was really the main source of inspiration for his Disney artist as he was trying to develop their training. The exhibition shows really the interest that, that Disney took in France, and this is, I think, really important, is that this is not a 
uh, a, a monographic exhibition of Disney. This, you know, Disney took interest in, in many different cultures and we're focusing very specifically on France and specifically in the relationship to the decorative arts and the French interior because we see parallels in the making and the conception and also in the rhetoric of the works of art produced in the Disney studios in the 1920s, as well as in mid-18th century Paris, the furniture, the porcelain, etc., which are the product of, of fantasy and, and imagination. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit briefly about kind of the journey that a visitor will go on through the exhibition and what will be covered. What, what I always think is very important for an exhibition is to keep things simple especially if you're if you're bringing together two worlds that at first may seem uh you know miles apart so 18th century french decorative arts made for a small european elite and then disney hand drawn animation that were created for a global public so when you're bringing together these sort of two disparate seeming worlds you have to then try and create a framework that's very simple so we decided to have a very simple chronological walk through the exhibition. So you start with Walt Disney himself with his first trip to Paris in 1918, followed by his second trip to Paris in 1935, the books that he collected, the miniature furniture that he collected over the course of the 1950s as he was thinking about creating a miniature world inspired by the Thorn Rooms in Chicago. And in that first room, rather miraculously, we do have on display one of these miniature interiors that were made by an heiress in Chicago, Mrs. Thorne, and that are normally on display in the Art Institute of Chicago. And I can tell you this was the single most complicated loan because these miniature interiors, which are absolutely amazing, are built into the wall. So the whole room had to be taken out of the wall, its contents carefully catalogued and packed and shipped over. So it's, it's pretty amazing. But what's so amazing about these rooms is that they are not only a, a platform for escapism, both for children and adults, but they're really the roots of Disneyland. So there's wonderful parallels here between the work of Disney, between the work of Mrs. Thorne, and of course, 18th century French decorative arts. And then after the, the story of Disney himself is established, you walk through a series of galleries that retrace the making of Disney films and their relationship to decorative arts. So we've got a, a, a small gallery that is devoted to the relationship between Disney and the fantasy of 18th century porcelain. And there are two films that show silly symphonies, The Clock Store from 1931 and The China Shop from 1934. And only in those three years, you can see an extraordinary development in, in animation. The Clock Store, which shows two caricatures almost of white porcelain figures in 18th century costume is black and white, is shown all sort of rather two-dimensionally. And then the china shop shows a very similar 18th century porcelain figures, but in color, dancing across a mirrored surface. And it really makes the point that these silly symphonies, of which about 70 were made over the course of the 1930s, were Disney's uh, experimental laboratory, where he really developed animation in extraordinary ways. And the same can be said about uh, porcelain making in the 18th century. At the beginning of the 18th century, Europeans didn't even know how to make porcelain. And by the 1720s, 30s and 40s, Meissen and then later Vincennes and Sèvres were creating the most remarkable objects which which really uh, encouraged your imagination and fantasy. And then as you proceed through the galleries, you then really can retrace the development of, of storytelling and animation 
with a small section devoted to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, then Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, and of course, Beauty and the Beast, which is really the meat of the exhibition. I wanted to ask you um, about a particular aspect of the Cinderella section, where it looks at some of the female artists who entered Disney's studio at the time, Mm -hmm. which was a time when men dominated this creative scene. And Mary Blair, for example, one of the creators, had a very bold and colourful style that was really a driving force behind the look of the studio's feature films in the 1940s and early 50s. Can you talk a bit more about how the exhibition shows women's contributions to Disney? Yes, I think it was very, very important to think about the social context in which some of these films were made. And I think it's very important to emphasise that that Disney, who you know, was was born 120 years ago, um, was a very flexible character who saw uh, in, in the 1930s originally uh, ma- made very clear that women would only work in the ink and paint department, which was was painting the, the cells with the gouache on celluloid for the films. And gradually in the 1930s, he, of course, realized that there were very many highly talented women out there who could help him tell the stories he sought to tell. And in the exhibition, we are highlighting some of the works of these of these um, female artists who joined the studios at the end of the 1930s, Finney Riediger, Bianca Magli, and of course, Mary Blair, who's obviously the most famous of them all and who had this incredibly bold and dynamic style. Disney was a great, great admirer of of Mary Blair's work, and she worked on three Disney films, Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, and of course, Peter Pan, and produced a great number of these really evocative gouaches. She then later gained fame by uh, producing many artworks in the preparation of It's a Small World. So Disney and Mary Blair worked very closely together. And in the exhibition, you can see how her very bold designs and really her storytelling through colour gradually made it into the film and into the background paintings of which several are displayed in the exhibition. And one of the really special works that is part of the Mets collection is The Hunt of the Unicorn, the tapestries, also known as the Unicorn Tapestries, which are in the Met Cloisters collection. And Mm -hmm. these pieces are often credited for providing a starting point for Sleeping Beauty's visual development, which I think is really astounding. These works are from, you know, the 15th century, early 16th century. Um, So can you talk about how the two are related So in the early 1950s, John Hench, who was a very important Disney artist and um, played a key role in the development of Disneyland later on, visited the cloisters and saw the unicorn tapestries and went back to Los Angeles, where he spoke to Disney and said, look, this would be a brilliant template for Sleeping Beauty, which is, of course, set in the Middle Ages. Charles Perrault wrote Sleeping Beauty at the dawn of the 18th century, and it was inspired by a visit to the Chateau du Cée in the Loire Valley. And it's a, it's sort of a late medieval Gothic flamboyant castle, which... which um, encouraged him to write the story about a princess who is brought to sleep for 100 years. So the unicorn tapestries show a fantasy of story, the sort of flamboyant representation of men and women in these colourful costumes around this, um, this mythical animal, the unicorn. And so you can see why that work of art would have encouraged the, uh, the aesthetics of Sleeping Beauty. 
And of all Disney films, arguably, Sleeping Beauty is artistically one of the most sophisticated. You can, in the film, really notice the various sources of inspiration that um, Ivan Earl, who was the art director of the film, so he had a comparable role to that of Mary Blair and Cinderella, he tried to uh, bring the the aesthetics of late medieval art into the film. So he he very specifically mentions the the uh, the works of Jan van Eyck, of course, the Très Richeur du Duc de Berry, which um, informed the prop book in the film, the the, the medieval pages, um, and the book itself is actually modelled on the Lindau Gospel in the Morgan Library. So a multitude of, of sources, and of course the music, as we know, is based on uh, um, Tchaikovsky's famous ballet. And in the exhibition, we actually show uh, one scene, which is Aurora and, and Prince Philip dancing through the forest. And you can really see how the Disney artists try to create this illusion of a tapestry being brought to life. The foreground and the background being represented in a, uh, in a sort of very tight uh, a tight grid. And it's very interesting to think about that because that is, of course, part of the aesthetics of tapestry. And we, we show in the exhibition uh, a, a romantic scene between a shepherd and shepherdess in front of a millefleur background, but the background really steps into the foreground. Um, and that is really part of the aesthetics of that film. However, and this is, I think, extremely interesting if you think about workshop practices and people overcoming the challenges of working together, there were some real discussions among Disney animators and the background artists about what was more important. And the Disney animators felt very strongly that uh, the animation of the main characters and, and their uh, conveying their emotions was more important than the backgrounds and felt that the uh, very strong presence of the backgrounds distracted from what was happening in the foreground. Interesting that, you know, something that we think of as kind of quite contemporary or a little vintage these days, looking at the, the original films, would have such old master kind of inspirations. Mm. So let's talk about, as you say, the meat of the exhibition, which is Beauty and the Beast. The exhibition actually coincides with the 30th anniversary of Disney's release um, in 1991. And it's the biggest section of the show. So can you tell us what we can expect from this series of galleries? So this series of galleries retraces the genesis of Disney's Beauty and the Beast. The production started in 1981 and was part of the so-called Disney Renaissance when hand-drawn animation uh, was brought back to life, as it were, um, after a dip in the late 70s and 1980s. And we are showing or, or retelling the story of, of the small group of Disney artists who went to London, actually, to start working on the film. And they took inspiration from Fragonard's The Swing, which is obviously the quintessential Rococo picture, which is very much about the representation of motion and emotions. And in the original version of, of Beauty and the Beast, as they um, first had considered it, the, the film's opening was going to be a homage to that very picture. Belle, the lead character, was going to be on a swing in a pink dress pushed by her father. So that was a, a wonderfully playful take on the French Rococo. However, uh, that scene was scrapped and the film was actually completely begun from scratch 
after the leadership of the Disney Studios said that the uh, the first attempt at the reinterpretation of Beauty and the Beast was just too slow paced and and that they really would rather want a proper Hollywood fairy tale. So we are showing in the exhibition for the first time uh, 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 an array of uh, preparatory drawings and sketches and watercolors that relate to that opening sequence. And we find that um, further Disney films took inspiration from Fragonard's uh, very important picture. The uh, preparatory CGI test for Tangled shows Rapunzel on a swing in a pink dress. And the film actually then made a cameo appearance in 2013 in uh, Frozen. The exhibition so sets the scene first looking at the making of the Disney Beauty and the Beast, but it then goes back and retraces the literary and artistic context in which the original story was written. So Beauty and the Beast is described as the most Rococo Disney film. What kind of objects do you have from this period that will be on show? So in the large Beauty and the Beast room, we have a section that is devoted to the a trio of supporting cast members, the teapot, the candlestick, and the clock. And think about the terminology that we use to describe these objects. It all borrows uh, from the anatomy of man. So a teapot has a belly and a shoulder. Uh, a candlestick, of course, has arms and clocks have faces. And we are highlighting this by pairing the original designs for these objects in the film with original 18th century objects from the Metz collection. So we have, for instance, a wonderful bull clock and a wonderful mahogany clock that are paired with the original designs for Beauty and the Beast and really show how the Disney artist starting looking at original sources and then gradually develop their designs. I think it's really important to, to emphasize that the Disney artists are artists with their own imagination. They're not going to just unimaginatively just copy history, but they're going to look at history and then create their own works of art. And the same is also true of the teapot. And the teapot is rather wonderful because it is an object that allows for all kinds of exploration of, of parallels with the human body. So we have the teapot in the film Beauty and the Beast, which is basically a head. The snout becomes the nose. Um, but we have other teapots where, for instance, the patient's teapot, uh, which dates from the 19th century, it's the body, the whole body that's created the teapot. And this goes back to the 17th century when a uh, an actor in, in London, a very specific actor, was described as the teapot actor because of his posture. So it's it's really retracing that, that imaginative leap that we all make when looking at these objects. And the wonderful thing about, about teapots and the parallels between hand-drawn animation and porcelain is that... Um, Porcelain was developed in the 18th century and the artists were exploring the extraordinary malleability of the clay that allowed uh, for the these evocation of life and movement, which we see in the Meissen teapots on display, but also in Duplessis' um, candlesticks or Duplessis' wall lights, which evoke vegetation. And that malleability of the clay finds a parallel in Disney animation in one of the central elements of, of animation animation, which is called squash and stretch. So that helps bring movement. So you, as you are looking at the individual drawings, you see 
see actually that the figures are, are either squashed or stretched to to really give them much more life, and which is something you don't really notice when you watch a full film, but you see when you look at the individual drawings. And the last object, obviously, in those galleries about the triumvirate of, of supporting cast is the candlestick. And we're showing the various sketches for Lumiere. We see, for instance, that originally they were thinking about him being made of silver, because, of course, um, we see more silver candlesticks than gilt bronze candlesticks. But silver is actually a color that doesn't really translate very well into animation. It would either be gray or blue. So that doesn't work very well. And we're pairing it with um, a wonderful array of original 18th century candlesticks and most especially Juste Aurelle Messonnier's candlestick. Messonnier was one of the great geniuses of the Rococo and he designed this extraordinary candlestick that was then copied across all of Europe and it's it's one that is not trying to look like a person but it, it evokes extraordinary movement and dynamism as your eye is led across a very complicated surface of escrows and sea scrolls and undulations that really evoke uh, a sense of movement. So what we're showing is basically two different types of animation, the hand-drawn animation of the 20th century and the, the animation of French decorative arts as done in the 18th century. It sounds like there's lots for, as you say, kind of a more critical connoisseur of art to enjoy, but also, as you said, lots for families to enjoy and because it's Disney is so well loved by people of all ages but especially by children I wondered what ways the museum and the curatorial team had come up with to kind of cater for younger visitors specifically well the exhibition is supposed to be for an audience that includes both children. So all the way from, from children who are going to probably not read a single label, but just be in awe and amazed and enjoy the objects on display, both the Disney material as well as the historic sources, all the way to, to an academic audience uh, that will want to engage with the bigger questions around anthropomorphisms, around the illusion of life. So we were thinking about these various audiences very, very carefully as we were putting the exhibition together, um, just also thinking about the height of the cases and the screens. There was a lot of kneeling in the uh, in the storeroom. I, I kept standing on my knees thinking, you know, is, is a child going to be able to see this object or not? So a lot of thought went into that, but it's really supposed to be for an array of different audiences. And I do, I might, my hope is very much that it's going to be an enjoyable experience for children. We do have, as, as you said, the, the multimedia, we've got uh, uh, the screens that show snippets from the films. We have Angela Lansbury, who obviously lent her voice to Mrs. Potts 30 years ago in Beauty and the Beast. She makes a cameo appearance in the introduction and actually talks about 18th century teapots, which is really rather wonderful. So we have all these elements. But again, even the, the audio guide uh, um, where several Disney artists participated in uh, is, is supposed to be sort of serious and encourage close looking. I hope that through the variety of objects on display, there's no real repetition. So so your, your eyes always have to recalibrate as they're looking at something new and that because the drawings encourage close looking, this will also encourage close looking at the decorative objects. 
I love the image of you on your knees in the storeroom <laughs> looking at objects on a child level. The Uffizi Museum actually has done something similar to bring the images in their galleries down to a children's level so that they can, you know, appeal more to a younger audience. So I think that's Yes, no, I mean, I think it's very important. If you can't see it, then you're, you know, never going to get the attention of a younger audience. Exactly. And so my last question is that in the show, there's a a work that depicts two vultures from um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which Mm -hmm. Walt Disney actually gifted to the Met in 1938. And at the time, it created a lot of debate in the press and the New York Times magazine asked the question, it's Disney, but is it art? And so I wanted to end on that question for you today. What do you think? Is it art? Will people think it's art? Worthy of the Met? It's a very good question. The answer at the time was, yes, it is art, very much so in the in the press in 1938. And I can tell you, this was very helpful for me when I was arguing to, to make this exhibition, said, you know, we really should do this Disney exhibition, because I could say, well, if it was okay in 1938, surely it's okay in 2021. But I think it's a bigger question. Actually, it's a fascinating question, because Disney does not fall into any of the traditional categories. And he made no pretensions to be a fine artist. And that, I think, is so fascinating about him. He didn't care whether he was called an artist or not. And I think that is a question that you can also then apply to the decorative arts. Disney said something that I think is hugely important. He said, we make films for entertainment and then the professors tell us what they mean. So, you know, his, his position was this is face value entertainment. It has obviously uh, been inspired by art, but I don't really actually care whether people call me an artist or, 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 or an entertainer as long as people are enjoying what they're looking at. And so there are in the exhibition in numerous instances, moments where we're exploring this and, and how he himself saw uh, his position in the relation with the, with, uh, with the visual arts. So, you know, is it Disney? Is it art? I, I think it is art, but I also think it's actually not really important. I think it's uh, very important um, to, to explore his work in a, in a meaningful cultural context and to engage with it. Sounds like a wonderful show. Thanks so much for talking to us about it today. Thank you very much for having me. Inspiring Walt Disney, the animation of French decorative arts is at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York from today, the 10th of December until the 6th of March 2022. It's touring to the Wallace Collection in London from the 6th of April to the 16th of October 2022. And you heard about the influence of The Swing by Fragoner on Disney and you can hear our in-depth look at that painting on this podcast in our work of the week in the episode published on the 5th of November. Coming up, we hear about Matisse in Baltimore and Joseph Albers in London. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. To the consternation of much of the country's contemporary art scene, Poland's Minister of Culture and National Heritage, Peter Glinski, announced his intention this week to appoint the painter and trade union leader Janusz Janowski as the new director of the Zaczenta National Gallery of Art in Warsaw. Despite the fact that over a thousand Polish arts professionals signed an open letter in July opposed to the dismissal of Zaczenta's current director, Hanna Wroblewska, the Ministry of Culture has now followed through in directly selecting her successor without recourse to an open competition. Glinski also announced last 
last week that the government will not be renewing the contract of the director of Woods's Museum of Art, Yaroslav Sukan, who's led the institution since 2006. More than 28,000 buyers spent an eye-watering total of $91.8 million to acquire the Merge, an NFT or non-fungible token by the artist, or perhaps artist collective, PAC. The project was sold between Thursday and Saturday last week in an open edition on the NFT platform Nifty Gateway. According to Nifty Gateway, that could make this sale the most expensive ever for a work by a living artist. The current or previous record for an NFT sale, Beeple's Every Days, the first 5,000 days, sold for 69. $3 million at Christie's in March. And finally, a People's Tribunal in London has ruled that China is committing genocide against the Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities through policies such as forced birth control and sterilisations. Geoffrey Nice, the tribunal's chair, read out its judgment on Thursday. It said the tribunal is satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that the PRC, by the imposition of measures to prevent births intended to destroy a significant part of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, as such, has committed genocide. In an episode of The Week in Art from 17th of September, you can hear my conversations on the art world's response to the allegations with the art newspaper's editor-at-large, Christina Ruiz, who heard many hours of disturbing evidence at the tribunal, and with Geoffrey Nice, the tribunal's chair. And you can read Christina's reports on the Uyghur people and more on all these stories at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android, which you can download from the App Store and Google Play. We'll be back after this. This winter, Classic Week continues at Christie's with a second group of auctions on view from today, the 10th of December. Visit King Street Galleries in London and explore the extraordinary art and objects, including a seasonal collection of Dutch Romantic landscapes, William Holman Hunt's early portrait of John Everett Millet, and the latest collection of illustrations by Sir Quentin Blake, sold to benefit House of Illustration, Greenpeace and Downing College, Cambridge. Further highlights include 18th and 19th century European gold boxes from an American private collection and ceramics from the collection of Robert G. Vatter that demonstrate the great connoisseurship of the dealer and collector. Discover more on christies.com slash classicweek. Now, on the 12th of December, the Baltimore Museum of Art, or BMA, will open the Ruth R. Marder Centre for Matisse Studies, with around 2,500 square feet of space dedicated to the study of the French artist Henri Matisse. As well as being a place of research, the centre will hold exhibitions and house a new commission of stained glass works from the painter Stanley Whitney. The BMA holds more than 1,200 works by Matisse, which is the largest public collection of his work anywhere in the world. The cornerstone of that collection is hundreds of works given to the museum by the collector Etta Cone, and coinciding with the centre's opening is a show exploring Cone and Matisse's friendship. The curator of that show, who also lead the programming at the Matisse Centre, is Katie Rothkopf, and I spoke to her about how this remarkable collection was built. Katie, the foundation of the BMA's collection of Matisse is the Cone family. Can you tell us about Etta and Clarabel Cone? The Cone sisters were from Baltimore. Uh, Clara Belcone uh, was the elder of the two. She was a, a medical doctor uh, from the first generation of female doctors uh, in the United States. And her younger sister, Etta, just went through high school. And both of them became interested in art in the late 1890s. Uh, uh, and Etta was actually the first of the two sisters to start collecting. She was given $300 by her uh, oldest brother to buy something to decorate the family sitting room. 
and she could have bought antique furniture or a beautiful rug, uh, but she decided uh, to invest in art and with that money was able to purchase five paintings by the American Impressionist Theodore Robinson. That's really striking that she bought an American Impressionist because even then that would have been quite a daring thing to buy, wouldn't it? Oh, definitely. I mean, we think they were the first Impressionist paintings to come to Baltimore for anybody. Uh, So, yes, it was a very daring move. We're not sure why she was interested in Robinson. He wasn't very well known then. Uh, Unfortunately, he's not that well known today, although he was a wonderful painter. Uh, We're very lucky at the BMA that four of the five paintings are actually part of our collection today. Oh, that's interesting. The introduction to Matisse and to the oeuvre of Matisse came through that very, very famous American collecting family, the Steins, didn't it? Yes, it did. Both sisters had met uh, Gertrude and Leo Stein, another set of siblings, in Baltimore in the late 1890s. And by the time of Edda's first meeting with Matisse in 1906, the Steins had relocated to Paris, uh, and their eldest brother, Michael, was also living there with his wife, Sarah Stein. In 1905, Edda was introduced to Pablo Picasso by Gertrude Stein when she was sitting for her uh, portrait uh, that he made of her that during that year, which is now in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. And from that first meeting, Edda purchased a couple of works on paper, uh, really enjoyed meeting him. Uh, and so the next year, Sarah Stein, Michael's wife, decided to introduce her to Henri Matisse, the other very important contemporary artist that they were friendly with. And it was a beginning of a 43-year friendship and collaboration. That's amazing. It's difficult now to imagine how radical Matisse was in the 1900s because it was at that moment when he was the leader of the foes. He he was ahead of Picasso in the kind of avant-garde states, really, at that stage, wasn't he? Oh, he definitely was. And he had first shown uh, in 1905 in the Salon and had caused great controversy. And I think the Cohen sisters were not particularly excited about him then. Uh, but by the next year, Etta certainly was open to him and I think really liked him as a person. Uh, and I think that really made a huge difference for her. But he was, you know, he and his whole band of artists were, you know, being a fauve or a wild beast, as they were termed by a critic, was not a compliment. I mean, it was, they were considered quite wild, quite brash, very bold. And for Etta to have to have met him and to have engaged with him so quickly was really, uh, you know, showed how brave and bold she was. And how much of a sort of rivalry or a kind of complementary kind of collecting was going on with the Steins? Because, of course, many of the works from the Steins collection actually ended up in the Cones collection. But to what extent was it based on friendship or was there a kind of rivalry between them? Oh, in those early years, it was very much a friendship. Uh, I don't think there wasn't a rivalry. I think the Steins saw that the Cones had a little bit of extra money to spend on such things. And they very much wanted uh, their artist friends to do well. And I think they saw that it would make a good connection. There was not really a rivalry. And of course, later on, when the Steins often needed funds, they would sell things to the Cones. So, you know, the Stein collections, both Gertrude and Leo's collection and Michael and Sarah's collection, couldn't really stay, they couldn't really afford to keep their collections together, or they just couldn't keep them together. So over the years, the the Cones um, would often purchase things from them. So we are very lucky to have quite a good selection of their works, although they originally were in the collection of the Stein family uh, in the Cone collection here at the BMA. Of course, and one of those is the great Blue Nude from 1907, extraordinary painting by Matisse. And, and, and 
it was actually acquired by Claribel, wasn't it? And 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 I'm interested in this the perception being up until relatively recently that that Claribel was the major collector and Etta was something of a sort of second fiddle player to Claribel, but that's not the case, is it? No, I, you know, Clarabel has always gotten lots of credit for being a great collector, and she bought some phenomenal things for the collection. There's no doubt about that. And certainly her purchase of Blue Nude in, in uh, 1926 changed the Cone collection forever. Uh, it is one of the greatest paintings he ever made, a really important statement for, uh, for him. It was a work that Clarabel would have known from Gertrude and Leo's collection. I mean, they purchased it right after he painted it in 1907. Uh, and it came to the United States in 1913 and caused great controversy when it was installed in the Armory Show uh, and, and traveled to Boston, uh, New York, and Chicago. Um, and, of course, when it was on view in Chicago, uh, the students at the Art Institute of Chicago were so upset by it that they burned it in effigy on the steps of the museum, uh, which is quite amazing to think about today. And so for Etta, she was the person who began the, the friendship with Matisse. They first met in 1906. Uh, she maintained the friendship. Uh, and Clarabelle bought wonderful things by him, but for a pretty short period of time. Her collecting history really began in 1922 and ended when she died in 1929. So it was relatively short. In, that, in those seven years, she bought a, a, a wonderful group of things by Matisse and others. Uh, are, for example, a wonderful painting, a Paul Cezanne of Mont Saint-Victoire, which is one of the highlights of the collection. But for the Matisse part of the Cone collection, it was really Etta who bought the most, bought in great depth. She bought paintings, sculpture, drawings, prints, all of the illustrated books that he had created before she passed away uh, in 1949. She was dedicated to him. And it was really how she's, she really it, it gave her an identity. Being a collector of his work gave her so much pleasure that it really very much um, changed the course of her life after meeting him in 1906. There's this intriguing point you make in your catalogue essay, which is that effectively the artist-collector relationship became something like a collaboration in the sense that Etta would encourage Matisse and Matisse would actually suggest works to incorporate into her collection. Is that right? Yes. When he came to Baltimore in 1930, he was working on a big project for the Barnes Foundation outside of Philadelphia. And he came to Baltimore and saw for the first time uh, what at Clarabel, who had who had recently died, and Etta had put together up to that point. He saw he saw I'm sure Blue Nude for the first time in many years. Uh, other works that he had had for many uh, he had made many years earlier, as well as works by his artistic mentors, uh, artists that he loved. And the Baltimore Museum of Art had uh, been founded in 1914, but it had moved to its current site in 1929, the year before his visit. And I am certain that Etta, during the short visit in Baltimore, talked about the museum. And uh, when her sister died in 1929, she had, in fact, even said in her will that if the city of Baltimore could learn to appreciate the spirit of modern art, she'd like the collection to come to the BMA. (laughs) So Matisse knew that he had uh, a pretty good shot of having a major presence in a major museum on the east coast of the United States. So it was at that moment that he really moved into a new relationship with Etta and began to make things for her, save things for her, suggest things, uh, knowing what the quality of the collection was and what her interests were. And one of the things, of course, about, as you say, that this collection having drawings and prints and and the illustrated books and everything else is, 
you can see the variety of Matisse's oeuvre, can't you? But one of the things that, that is striking about his, him is that he could make a very, very modernist painting and a quite traditional painting almost in the same setting, as it were. And that's one thing you get from having such an in-depth collection, right? So you, you can see how various he was. Yeah. And I think, you know, she really was interested in, in every bit of his process. And I think that's what makes the collection so unique. It wasn't just big, splashy paintings either. I mean, the drawings that she bought were some of the most beautiful that he ever made. You know, ink drawings and charcoal drawings, particularly from the 30s, uh, are just extraordinarily beautiful. And she loved every aspect of it. I mean, her sculpture collection is extraordinary. He made about 83 sculptures uh, throughout his career, and she purchased 18 examples uh, her sister purchased her own group of about six. And, you know, the, it was sort of a part of her interest in all aspects of his art making. Dude, so tell us about some of the kind of key works, because one of the greatest, of course, is that is that reclining nude from the, from the 1930s, large reclining nude, a really extraordinary work, and which uh, Matisse sort of teased uh, her by sending her images of the work in process, which of course has become very famous in academic books since. But yes, he, he showed her his process to arrive at that remarkable final composition, didn't he? Yes, well, he started to work on the painting and we know from photographs that he had made of it. Uh, he, he, he In the 30s, he started to use photography as a way to capture the different uh, periods and, and, and his work on a painting. Uh, you know, the large reclining nude is not the only painting where he did that. But he, we know from the first photograph that this painting began as a much more as a traditional reclining nude on a chaise with a, a a chair behind her with a vase of flowers. And over the course of six months, she became more abstracted. Uh, her she lost her facial features. She gained her facial features. Her body changed, became longer. And at a certain point, he added a whole gridded pattern behind her, and. Etta was uh, so thrilled when she received first one letter from Matisse showing some of the photographs and then another letter showing the rest. And uh, this group of 22 photographs really wooed her. You know, he was able to woo her into buying this painting, uh, which I believe he made in reaction to having seen the Blue Nude in the Cone sisters' apartments five years earlier, that when he had that visit to, to see Etta in December of 1930, he saw the, the blue nude for the first time in so long. And I think that reclining nude theme, which he had worked on on and off throughout his career uh, in sculpture and in painting, really came back to him. And he wanted to make a friend or, you know, make a new version of the painting in his new style, in his 30s style, which was so very different from what he had done in 1907. And we know from photography of her apartment that she, in fact, installed it across the room from the Blue Nude in her sister's apartment, which she kept up until her death in 1949. That's great. And then, of course, there's the Yellow Dress, which is another extraordinary painting. Tell us about the Yellow Dress. Uh, the Yellow Dress is one of the most wonderful paintings in the collection and one that I cannot stop staring at. Um, it is so beautifully painted. It's a work that Matisse began in 1929 at the end of a period in his career. You know, throughout the 20s when he was living in Nice, he had made a, a series of wonderful paintings of interiors and figure paintings often featuring his models dressed up in costumes from other parts of the world, sort of doing a play-acting view of his studio interior. And um, at the end of the 20s, he was getting quite a lot of negative criticism uh, about being too decorative and too pretty and the 
Uh, and I think the critics felt that the tougher Matisse from earlier in his career had really started to, to disappear. Uh, and he, he felt that criticism very um, deeply. And he was, began working on uh, The Yellow Dress during that moment, started the painting, and then decided to sort of leave it for a bit. He went on a trip. He went to the United States. He went to Tahiti. He came back. We know from letters that he continued to work on it and finally finished it in 1931. And in fact, the painting is dated 1929-1931, which is very unusual for him. Uh, uh, and when he finished it, uh, I think it sort of signaled the end of that period in his career. And, and we can tell we are very, very fortunate to have acquired 15 drawings for the painting from two different sources in, in the last 20 years, including most of them from the Matisse family. And you can see how the model began and see a little bit about his process in making her uh, and making uh, the figure come alive. Uh, and what's so interesting also is that when you look at the painting itself, you can see changes so clearly. The pentimento was so clear. You can see how her shoulders have changed, her face has changed. She's gotten much larger uh, and more dominant. And I think that sort of signaled um, the end of that period for him. And, and, and from that moment on, he then took a, a break and, and took a three-year break and, and didn't come back to uh, easel painting until 1934. And the yellow dress, it strikes me, is very indicative of this, the sort of red herring that is the comfortable armchair comment, this famous comment by Matisse that, you know, he wanted to create art that was like a comfortable armchair for a businessman at the end of the day or whatever. That's a paraphrase. But that's sort of attached itself to Matisse. And, and, and Matisse detractors always talk about that phrase. But actually, his life was filled with anxiety, as those biographies by Hilary Sperling told us, right? The process of making art for him was not a harmonious and beautiful experience at all. Oh, he worked so hard. And, uh, and I think the yellow dress, you can see the result of that work. And I think uh, you see him struggling with her figure and coming to a beautiful resolution right in front of you. And, and that's extraordinary for him. And to be so proud to have put that date range of 1929 to 1931, I think it really signals, I think for him it was a painting he really, really liked and was very proud of in the end. And it's interesting that it was after he came to Baltimore to visit Etta Cohn in 1930, it's one of the first things that she bought when she went back to France after the death of her sister. Uh, and it's a painting that, you know, she just adored. Uh, there's a wonderful story that, you know, because Matisse took this hiatus from painting uh, between 1931 and 1934, Etta was still going every year to visit and expecting to have a selection of things waiting for her. And when she arrived the year after she purchased the painting, Matisse really didn't have anything to sell her. Uh, and so instead, he arranged for Lisette Lowengard, the model, to come back to his studio to put the dress on again, to sit in the same spot and to greet Etta as she walked in to see her old friend. And it was her favorite story to tell people because it, for her it was so personal and, and you know, he'd gone to so much effort for her and it really meant a lot to her. They had a very productive correspondence, didn't they? There was, a, I mean, in, in fact, in, in in those letters that you detail in the catalogue, there's really emotional words said between them, and there's that line: "It was your work that has filled my life." That Etta sent in a letter to Matisse. Yes, I have to admit, I was really looking for that sentence. It's interesting, you know. She didn't write a lot about how she felt about the collection, from what we've been able to find. And, you know, she didn't write an autobiography. She didn't write treatises about her collection. 
We know she gave some art talks in, in her apartment around, you know, in Baltimore, but it was always very objective. You know, she didn't even focus on the things she owned. She, she talked about the artists she liked, uh, but I don't think she, she was, you know, quite modest and, you know, wasn't someone that was out there, you know, she wasn't a big self-promoter in any, any way, shape or form. And so to finally hear her voice and to hear what, what knowing him and what his work had meant to her really was, a, you know, a wonderful, a wonderful thing for me to have been, been able to find in, in the correspondence. You know, we, of course, have always had the letters from Matisse and his family going uh, in one direction. And, and as part of this project, we were able to finally delve into the letters that she sent, uh, which, uh, you know, are held somewhere else. So it was, it was a great thrill to find that letter and that comment. I'm sure it was. Obviously, she kept collecting basically up until her death. So, I mean, the last purchase, I think you said six months before before she died. But there's this intriguing thing is that she actually rejected just one painting. And it's a great painting. What on earth got into her? I don't know. That was a complete revelation in digging through the archives to find this one, this little bit of correspondence with Matisse's son, Pierre, where he tells, uh, you know, where it's clear that there was a painting that was in the collection briefly that she didn't feel comfortable with. And so it was returned uh, and both Matisse and Pierre had to discuss it. And I think the artist was a little bit, you know, less than thrilled only because he thought it would have been perfect for her. But in the end, she purchased something that was much more, that sort of moved him in a different direction. And so, um, you know, it was the, a painting uh, of, of two girls that's very simplified. And it's really part of the very end of his painting uh, career. You know, he became bedridden for the last four or five years of his life. And so it, it really does signal a new moment in his career. So I can understand where, you know, she may want to have broached something new if she could. Yeah, and, and of course, she wasn't alive to see the, the full development of his work into the cutouts, but, but she did buy jazz, which, of course, was a kind of proto work for that series. Yes, we are thrilled that she did um, because, because we didn't get to that moment and, you know, is a beautiful thing. And I think really shows and I think combined with that last painting, you really do see the evolution of his career. You know, she started with his early academic drawings, you know, done right in about 1900 and, and to have bought something as late as 1947 all in one career is really remarkable. Now, of course, you've got this new centre for the study of Matisse. And of course, the Cone Collection is at the core of that. But tell me more about that. What are you hoping to do with the centre? Well, the Ruth R. Martyr Centre for Matisse Studies, uh, which is its official title, you know, we are envisioning it as a place for people to come and become inspired by Matisse, both through exhibitions that we do here, as well as inviting scholars and students, uh, college students and graduate students primarily, to come and be inspired by his work and to see his work up close. You know, the BMA has, has had an incredible collection of, of Matisse's work since Etta Cohn died in 1949, giving us about 600 works, she and her sister. In the subsequent years, we've almost doubled that. So we have an incredible collection, incredible depth. And we really wanted to provide a place to inspire more scholarship on him. Uh, very, you know, very, um, you know, in a way that would really promote and provoke more exhibitions, more articles, more dissertations. Uh, and so it's a place for people to come and do research. Uh, we will continue to do small shows in a gallery that's adjacent, uh, that's a part of the center, as well as larger shows upstairs, like the exhibition A Modern Influence that we were, we've been discussing. And uh, we will also encourage living artists 
to be inspired by him in um, small exhibitions and other projects going forward. So it's both a it's a place to both uh, promote his work um, as well as provoke new work, and and I think it will be really exciting for people coming to Baltimore and, and seeing what we're doing in the years to come. And of course, you've got this rather emblematic project, which is that Stanley Whitney's done these stained glass windows, which are wonderful in the sense that they're an, an example of a living artist making work which responds to Matisse and carries on his tradition, but also a direct response to the great stained glasses that Matisse did in Vence, which of course are some of his greatest works. And they are unbelievably beautiful. And to be able to make that connection right in the centre is it's it's magical and the color coming through i just can't wait for people to see it um, starting on sunday to see the way the light from the outside world enters the space changes the architecture throughout the day and it, it's really thrilling and thrilling because of course you know Cone never would have had a stained glass commission for matisse in baltimore uh, but this is something that really connects uh, a media that Matisse really loved uh, with a living artist who was just wonderful and, and, is, and is doing terrific work, and we're absolutely thrilled. Well, Katie, thank you so much for talking to us about this today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. The Ruth R. Marder Centre for Matisse Studies is open from the 12th of December and a modern influence, Henri Matisse, Etta Cohn and Baltimore, is on view at the museum until the 2nd of January 2022. And now it's time for our work of the week. The Christera Roberts Gallery in London is opening an exhibition dedicated to Joseph Albers Prince, focusing on two prolonged bouts of printmaking early on and in the middle of the German Bauhaus artist's long career. Among the works in the show is the series Graphic Tectonics from 1942, a group of lithographs that uses modulated thick and thin black lines to create complex architectonic compositions. I spoke to the gallery's founder, Alan Christea, about these works and Albers' wider printmaking activity. Alan, we're here to talk about Joseph Albers. He's best known actually for a particular body of work, the Homage to the Square series, which obviously is this mainly a series of paintings. But how prolific a printmaker was he? He was hugely prolific, and I think he was able, certainly with the Homage to the Square prints, I think he was able to achieve something that he couldn't even in the paintings, because with the paintings, you're always conscious of the canvas. They're not as precise as the prints. But by, you know, a very clever use of screen printing and indeed of lithography I mean lithography dominated in his early years, screen print came later and screen print was great for him because of the accuracy but using both methods he was able to play with that interaction of colour in a perfect way and I remember Michael Craig Martin saying to me one day that he had no intrinsic interest in the square but he discovered that it was the perfect vehicle for the interaction of colour, where two colours touch. And obviously other artists have been involved in this. I mean, I've recently, you know, been looking again at Patrick Heron and that thing, but his was always a wobbly line, whereas, whereas Albers is definitely a structured vehicle for the interplay of colour. And in this show 
particularly, it's it's very much a show of line rather than colour. Or, or, or actually, no, that's not quite true. It's a show of line and tone, black and white, then it, more so than colour. Yes, it is. There have been so many exhibitions devoted to the homage to the square, but where do those homage to the squares come from? It's a bit like talking about Montreal, where people are used to the, the boogie-woogie, you know, abstract works that which really hit you in the eye. But where did it come from? And this is an opportunity to discover where it comes from. And it starts early on. We're going all the way back to around 1913 for the first print. And what tradition was he working in then? He was working in a German tradition, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century. There was very much to do with expressionism that was using woodcut primarily to do expressionistic work. And Albers was no exception to that to start with. It's really with the Bauhaus and the ideals that underpinned the Bauhaus that you get the first revolution in his work. So you're able to see in this exhibition the move, if you like, from figuration and representation to an abstract philosophy. Indeed. But that philosophy is still to do with the human hand but it's also to do with, if you like, the machine hand. Tell me about lithography, because I, I wanted to look at a group of works which are called graphic tectonics, which are made in the, in the medium of lithography. What does lithography offer a printmaker? What are its qualities? Well, lithography means you can draw freely on the support, as opposed to etching where you're digging in to a copper plate or a zinc plate. So... Lithography, you know, allows you a freedom of the hand and you see that in the works directly leading up to graphic tectonics but graphic tectonics marks the next big change because he's still using his hand but he's kind of saying whether I use my hand or not doesn't matter that much. Who's to say that a handmade mark is better than a machine-made mark. And so in this series, where he really started to play around with space, perspective, depth in the picture, he did it by hand, but he was using a ruler. That belies the freedom idea. And it's also why I make the point about lithography, because obviously these could have been done with screen print also, but it was too early for that. Right. I mean, the first decade in which one really saw screen print emerge was in the 60s. And even then, people said it was a form of reproduction and knocked it, just as they knock digital art nowadays. Right. So in, in the graphic tectonics, on one side, the human hand. On the other side, let's enjoy the appearance of a mechanical mark. One is not better than the other. And you can do all sorts of things with that machine-appearing work in spatial terms, in perspective terms, in terms of movement. I mean, in some ways, you know, you look at these completely abstract works and somehow Escher comes into my mind because you're not quite sure what you're looking at. Is your eye being led in? Is it being repulsed? Is what's that line doing to the next line? As, you know, as he combines thick and thin lines. And so I see that as a radical departure and, and one that led on to all those 
much later, much more famous works. Indeed. And of course, right up until sometime in the late 50s, he was very much a black and white printmaker. And as indeed, if you like, was Picasso or Matisse, because printmaking was traditionally viewed as a black and white medium, whether it be etching, dry point, lithography, what have you. I'm really struck with, there's a particular work called Seclusion, which is, you also have, wonderfully, you have a drawing of that on graph paper here too, so that you can actually see this transition from a drawing in pen and ink to a lithograph. Yeah. And I think that's really instructive because that that hand machine element is really palpable when you're looking at the drawing and then seeing the the final The the very fact that he used graph paper underlines the the point I'm trying to make about the the machine made. And nowadays we, we accept it. Although people are still in love with the artist's hand, I mean, contemporary painting is as much about orchestration as as it is about painting. It doesn't necessarily matter who actually did the painting. (laughs) And that also comes out of this revolution that came much earlier on, in his case, you know, in the early 40s. Because jump forward to somebody like Bridget Riley, she's investigating the same things as... Albers was 20 years before. You know, I represent a lot of artists and work with a lot of artists, and they're almost unanimous in underlining the influence of Joseph Albers. That's really interesting, because he was a teacher, and this is, this is absolutely yes. crucial. And it's almost like, yes, he was a teacher literally teaching people, but his art is an art of instruction, isn't it? It is indeed. And whenever you see an Albers exhibition of whatever period in his life... One's always conscious of a philosophy as much as of the visual art itself. I remember seeing the exhibition at Tate Modern and coming out, and I felt it was kind of life-enhancing in that old kind of Berenson terminology, in as much as it was a philosophy, a democratic philosophy, that took him from point one until he died. Whether you believe or sign up to the philosophy is neither here nor there. It's heartwarming because it determined all his actions and he was a teacher and he imbued so many artists of the next generation or succeeding generations with a philosophy, with a seriousness, with the concept that anything is possible. Don't write off anything. But it's always a positive philosophy. One of the things about Albers that's I find intriguing is that his work is always sort of couched within a kind of northern European and American tradition and northern American tradition but there was this tremendously important series of trips he made to Mexico and yeah. you, and you see that in these prints that this this the influence of Mexican ancient architecture quite definitely and because he he kept an open mind and one has to respect people who are able to keep an open mind throughout their lives you know it's a bit like talking about David Hockney you're constantly reinventing himself and adapting to new techniques and what have you but he and his wife Annie were also you know an artist of immense importance made many trips to Mexico studying both the architecture and their weavings their ornamentation and that does indeed have an influence, particularly on these graphic tectonics. 
he was studying the architecture and there was a symmetry there and there was also a visual play there that he could make use of himself. The thing that strikes me, and, it, and indeed it strikes me throughout the show and almost everything I'm looking at, is that extraordinary economy that, that we, when we think of Albert's, his, his means are so economic and yet the power of the final image is always so, so strong. I think he felt that the philosophy demanded a purity and that purity in a way came about through reduction but it was an extremely sophisticated reduction. Never put in more than is necessary, but the simplicity, it's pretty hard to achieve. I mean, you need a long time to get there. In one sense, in printmaking terms, it's like looking at a Matisse Aquatint, and people say, well, it can't take more than five minutes to do that, and you say, well, you're right, but it also took a lifetime. And I think in Alba's case also, if you see that progression all the way through from those early portraits or woodcuts of quarries, or of you, which are very much in a different tradition, but he was, he was always heading in one direction. And, you know, I feel he kind of... This is the beginning of the period, the early 40s, where he really got it and was able to take it forward and manifest itself in different ways. I mean, this is about illusion. This is about line, structure, illusion, depth. When you get onto the colour, you know, he was building on the foundation of everything that came before in order to play with colour also. So he had his own education leading up to colour, but afterwards, so there's a 45-year gap between when he did his first print and when he first started working with with colour in the, in the homages. Exactly. You mentioned Annie there, and the last question is about the two of them. There's this wonderful show in Paris at the moment in which we see their work side by side, although in discrete groups, which I think is very well done. But at the same time, they have a shared language, but they're very distinctive artists in their own way, aren't they? Yes, and I mean, you have to remember that when Annie first went to the Bauhaus, she wasn't allowed on the painting course, basically. I don't think she really questioned that, but when she was sent off to the weaving department, she kind of fought against it. And she did some great tapestries throughout her lifetime, some great weavings. But she signed up very quickly to Joseph's direction. And I don't want to put her in a secondary position either, because I don't think her work would have turned out quite the same way without Joseph and vice versa. So they fed each other all the time. Although, being a woman of her generation, she took no credit for it whatsoever. I mean, I love the idea that when once asked about her, her art practice and what she felt um, you know, about her possible influence on Joseph, she said, well, I'd like to buy his, choose his socks for him. <laughs> but she was equally fascinated by Mexico and may indeed have been the leading light in that investigation. Well, Alan, thank you so much for talking to me about Joseph and Annie. Not at all.
Joseph Albers, Discovery and Invention, the early graphic works, is at the Cristea Roberts Gallery in London until the 22nd of January, but note that the gallery is closed between 20th of December and the 3rd of January. And the show in Paris I mentioned, Annie and Joseph Albers, Art and Life, continues until the 9th of January at the Musée d'Art Moderne de la Vie de Paris. And that's all for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David is also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Henrietta Benthel and Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, Amy and Wolf, Katie and Anna. And thank you for joining us. See you next week for our review of the year. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.